You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal, covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at www.pingamejournal.com. Welcome to TopCast, the internet pinball radio show. And tonight we've got another episode for you with another game software engineer. This gentleman worked actually at Williams in the gaming division first, doing dotmation programming on their slot machines. Then, after working at WMS Gaming, he moved over to Stern Pinball, working with Pat Lawler Designs on such machines as Monopoly, Roller Coaster Tycoon, Ripley's Believe It or Not, NASCAR Slash Grand Prix, Special Guest, Special Guest, Special Guest, Special Guest. So tonight on TopCast, I'd like to welcome Greg Dunlop. Greg Dunlop, again, worked at WMS Gaming on the slot machine division, uh, doing uh, dot animation programming. He did the animations on many of their Dotmation slot machines. The Dotmation slot machines were a more advanced slot machine that incorporated three mechanical spinning reels along with a dot matrix display. This is a larger dot matrix display um, like was used in Sega Pinball for like Maverick and Baywatch. And um, he did a lot of the programming for these games, including Monopoly, Advanced Boardwalk, Magic Lamp, which is a very popular Dotmation slot machine, Palace of Riches, and Riverbell 21. And then moved to Pat Lawler Design and worked on software and dot animation for such games as Monopoly, Ripley's, NASCAR, and Roller Coaster Tycoon. So we're going to be giving Greg a call right now on TopCast. Give him a buzz right now see what he's doing. Hello? Greg, it's Clay. Hey there. we we got to start all the way back at the beginning again. So when uh, I was around 12 or 13 years old, uh, there was an arcade that... Um, me and my friends used to kind of sneak off to sometimes because it was um, kind of had to cross a really busy, busy highway in the town that I grew up in. Um, and so we used to kind of make our way over there on occasion. And um, and we used to play, you know, your typical Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, etc. But um, for a while there, I got really into Black Knight. There was something about that game that really attracted me. And I remember at the time there was a whole line of pinballs in there. It was Firepower and Black Knight and Gorgar was there and stuff. And, um, but I was playing a ton of Black Knight, and, um, and uh, at the time, I eventually got my first pinball winnings from Black Knight because the arcade had a contest every month to uh, determine um, who the high score was on every machine that month, and they would give that person a T-shirt from the arcade. And so I got a T-shirt from the arcade one month for my Black Knight score, and uh, I wore that thing, man, I wore that thing way past its prime. <laughs> um, so that was my first pinball, uh, really, memories of, of any seriousness. Um, after that, I kind of um, fell away from pinball. It didn't really stick with me at that time, and it wasn't until years and years later that um, I was going to uh, North West Lafayette, Indiana, 
um, where Purdue University is with a um, friend of mine to see a band play. And we got there really, really early, and we were wandering around looking for something to do, and we encountered this laundromat. And uh, this laundromat had tons and tons of pinball machines in it, like 40 games. It was unbelievable. And so we went in there and started playing, and that was the first time that I played Twilight Zone. And playing Twilight Zone completely blew my mind. It totally blew me away to playing pinball. And um, it was the game that really got me stuck into uh, pinball for real, um, that really got me into the games. And after um, playing Twilight Zone, this friend of mine also had a uh, an Internet account, a dial-up account, um, and she told me about Rec Games Pinball. And so I got myself a dial-up account and started reading uh, RGP and getting involved with... Uh, with that and uh, posting to RGP and getting involved with, uh, you know, talking to other pinball people both in Chicago and around the uh, country. And that was really what uh, got me started really being serious about pinball and learning about pinball rules and who designed the games and what the similarities between the designers were and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's how that all got started. Did, now, did you like Adam's family, which, you know, same designer, Pat Lawler? Absolutely. Um, I remember after um, after Twilight Zone, let me think, I did like Adam's Family, but after Twilight Zone, the next game, um, which was not a Pat Lawler game, obviously, that I got really stuck into was World Cup Soccer. Um, because when you grow up in Chicago and you, um, and you start um, going around and playing pinball all the time, you start realizing that Williams had, had arcades that they would test new games at. And once you realize that, you start kind of shadowing these arcades, um, waiting for new games to show up. And one of these arcades was called uh, Dennis's Place for Games, and um, it actually only just closed recently. It was in a very um, uh, well-traveled part of Chicago um, called uh, Wrigleyville by Wrigley Field. And um, so I used to go there and play all the time. It was right down the street from where I worked, and... One day I was in there playing, and um, somebody kind of tapped me on the shoulder as I was about to start, to start a new game, and he said, do you mind if I get into the game there? I work for the company that makes this, and I worked on this game, and I need to check the audits and, and see uh, how much money it's made and stuff like this. And that was Matt Coryell, who was one of the software engineers for World Cup Soccer. And um, so he was the first sort of industry person I met, and... Um, later on uh, that week, I was playing uh, at another location in Chicago called Diversions, which is also now closed, like pretty much every other location in Chicago at this point. And uh, the same thing happened, and that person was Larry DeMar, who, of course, was the other person working on software for World Cup Soccer. And I was blown away at that point to meet Larry. I mean, um, he told me who he was and that he had done software for Black Knight and Twilight Zone and Adam's Family and Funhouse, and I was completely blown away to, to meet Larry. And I posted this whole thing to RGP about, oh, my God, I met this guy and stuff. And, um, and it was meeting them that uh, they told me about the IFPA tournament that was coming up in Chicago at the time. And so that was the first pinball tournament I went to, was uh, IFPA 4, I believe it was, in 1994, and it was at um, the same hotel where they have Expo now, and um, and that was a lot of fun. And while I was there, I got to meet in person a lot of the people that I had met on the internet through RGP, local people like Louis Coziars and Don Coons and this guy Noel Steer, 
and um, also um, people from all over the country, like Keith Johnson I met for the first time then, and Bowen Karens I met for the first time then, and Brian Dominey and a lot of other, you know, pinball players, Dan Wilson I met, um, a lot of other people who I had encountered online but not in person before. Um, and that was... and. Uh, and that sort of led to me starting to go to tournaments and stuff like that and being really more actively involved in the scene, as it were. Now, did you know about Pinball Expo at this point, too? I didn't know about Pinball Expo at that point, um, but I heard about it soon enough, and I remember that that year, um, some, me and some guys in a band that I was in all um, kind of got uh, piled into uh, one guy's van and road tripped up to Pinball Expo uh, that year for the first time. I remember that Williams had Twilight Zone there, and um, this actually might have been. I'm trying to. I'm trying to put timelines together and now. I'm trying to think if that was before the IFPA tournament or after, because Williams had Twilight Zone there, so it seemed like it must have been before. Data East had Last Action Hero. I remember, and Mystery Castle from Alvin G was the tournament game. So that would have been before World Cup Soccer came out, right? That would have been 93, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the World Cup came out in 94, obviously. Right. So I'm, uh, I'm, I've obviously got my timelines a little screwed up there, but I did go to that pinball expo. I only went for one day. Um, we kind of cruised in, stayed for an afternoon, and hung out and played a bunch of games and, and took off. Um, I didn't really connect with anybody while I was there. So, mm. um, But after that, I went to every pinball expo after that. Um, obviously, living in Chicago, there was really no reason not to go. And I went to every pinball expo after that for 15 years straight. Um, and uh, some of my greatest memories are staying up until, uh, you know, all hours of the night um, playing overnight at pinball expo with people like Oren Day and Steve Yonke and Noel and stuff and, and uh, you know, coming out and watching the sun uh, come up and then having to qualify for the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> so were you a pretty darn good player at this point? I was... I rapidly went from uh, crappy to not bad, and I slowly went from not bad to pretty good, and I never really progressed beyond pretty good. Um, I've always been really streaky, and so I will have really, really amazing runs of games every once in a while, but everything else will be total garbage. Um, and so, you know, every once in a while I'll put together... I won one pinball tournament in my life, and it was a tournament. It was a small tournament. It was in Wisconsin, but there were a lot of local players there. And, you know, in Chicago, obviously, the players' community is very, very strong. And uh, I won one tournament there, and I was just on the run of my life. I remember I was killing Shadow all weekend. Um, and I've had some other um, instances where I played pretty well. But other than that, you know, I'm, a, I'm an above-average player by sure, for sure, um, but I'm not... Uh, I'm not uh, great on the order of the people that I played with in Chicago, like Lyman or Dave Heggie or Jason Wardrick or Dan Ferris or any of those guys. Hmm. Hmm. Now, how did you... Now, this was about mid-1990s. When did you start working at Williams, and how did you get that job? So, um, what happened was, you know, when I, when I first met Larry and Matt... Um, they, um, I went to that IFPA tournament and they introduced me to a couple of other people. I remember I met Ted that weekend because he was there showing Demo Man, which had just came out. Demo Man, Soccer, uh, Rescue 911, and uh, World Wrestling Federation, the Data East game, were the games that were there that year. And um, I 
So um, as time went on, I started meeting more and more people in the industry, and you know, you kind of start it kind of starts occurring to you, hey, there are people who actually get paid to work on pinball machines because you know, it's like before you start meeting these people and talking to them about their jobs, you don't really think about it, but as you do, you start thinking, you know. That's that's kind of cool that there are these people who are really they really love pinball and they're really passionate about it and they get to do it for a living. And um, uh, one of the things that really got me uh, to meet a lot of people was that um, at some point John Norris started a pinball league in Chicago and was called Pin Golf. And if you search on RGP, you can find the rules and some postings from him about it. But it was um, basically the idea was that because we had such a weird player base in Chicago. Not weird, but we had a, a group of extremely strong players like Lyman and Dave and Kevin Martin and stuff like that, and then a group of kind of mid-tier players, um, and then a bunch of people who were kind of starting out and who wanted to get into pinball. And so what he did was he created a handicapped pinball league. Um, and if I recall correctly, the deal was that... Uh, uh, it was like a golf system, and the replay score on a game was par. And then if you got double the replay score, you got like a birdie, and and triple the replay score was an eagle or something like that. And so you kept golf points based on your play and what your score was. Um, and so uh, I was in that league, and everybody from Chicago was in that league at one point or another. And uh, I, I played with Oren Day for a while in that league, um, from Data East, and so I got to know him really well. And uh, through knowing him, I got to go, and uh, the the Data East guys were a lot more open about uh, having people visit their factory than the Williams guys were. So I used to go and visit Oren at Data East a lot when they were developing new games, and I'd see Joe uh, Kamenkow would often have nights where he would invite the local players' community in to play games before they went on test and stuff like that. So I got to get more of a... Uh, uh, idea of what the pinball sort of manufacturing was like um, at that point. And then, um, obviously, through Pinball Expo, I got to meet a lot of people, too. One year, I think it was 95 or possibly 96, um, Louis Koziars and another guy named Steve Baumgarten hosted a party at Pinball Expo for all of the RGPers. It was kind of a secret party where there was a code word put up on, a, uh, put up on the, the bulletin board um, which indicated what room the party was going to be in, and everybody collected up there, and there was beer and whatnot. And, and I met, that was the day when I met Ted Estes for the first time. And um, when I really met him for the first time, I had met him very briefly at IFPA, but that was, as I'm sure we'll get to soon enough, he had already known who I was by this point. So, um, um, so anyway, through all of that, I was, you know, you meet these people and you start thinking, maybe this is something that would be interesting to do. And I was kind of, you know, I had thought about it at various points, and and part of it was I didn't have really, I, I thought, the technical skill to um, to get into doing it um, because, you know, I was not a computer science engineer. I was writing software for a living, but it was at a much higher level than the kind of stuff that they were doing at Williams, um, and I was completely self-taught. I didn't have any engineering background or any electrical engineering background, which is really helpful for pinball, too. Um, but the other thing was kind of, you know, I didn't, you know, I loved pinball so much, and I didn't want to get into a situation where I was turning something that I loved into just a job, you know. But as time went on, I started thinking about it more and more, especially as people that I knew started getting jobs, especially at Williams. Um, 
like uh, Lyman went to work there and Louis Coziars went to work there. And, and, you know, they were obviously having a great time. And I remember at Pingolf one year, uh, one week, um, Louis and Larry wheeled in Jackbot. And, uh, you know, they were obviously setting, they were setting it up and they were obviously very proud of it. It's a great game. I love playing it. And we had a ton of fun playing it at Pingolf for the next few weeks, as it were. And, uh, and, and that kind of got me starting thinking about it more and more. But the thing that really, really, um, got me uh, kind of hooked on the idea was one year um, at Expo, me and Don Coons were rooming together because oftentimes locals would um, get a room at the Ramada in order to, you know, not have to be, you know, you could play until 4 in the morning and just go crash and not have to worry about getting home or whatever. And me and Don Coons had a room, and uh, Ted had invited Tom, Don to come and do a tour of the Williams factory. Um, and this was right before the Williams factory at 3401 uh, California shut down for pinball production. Johnny Mnemonic was on the line, which I believe was the last game that they produced there. And um, he invited Don to come on a tour of the factory, and he said Don could bring someone with him. And um, so Don asked me if I wanted to go, and I said, yeah, of course. And, you know, Ted said, okay, you guys can come. And even though Greg was kind of a jerk to me or whatever, um, you know, we can, we, we'll do this and it'll be fun. Uh, I have to ask you guys not to talk about anything you see in here. And we are all, you know, pledged to secret, secrecy and whatever. And so we went and we toured around the production line and it was really cool. And they were making pinball games. They were starting to make slot machines already there on the production line, which was, you know, I saw that. And then um, he took us into where the engineering department area was. Um, into this area called the bottom of the stairs, which was kind of like the pinball. Uh, it was kind of like when, when pinball games went on test at Williams, they would stick them at the bottom of the stairs that led up to pinball engineering uh, for testing by not just the engineers as they walked by, but also people from other departments could come in there and play and whatnot. And they had notepads on them to, um, to mark down what your comments were, stuff like that. And, but it was also kind of like a water cooler spot, you know, People would gather there, you know, on their way back from lunch and, you know, talk about, you know, rumors or whatever was happening during the day or complain about the rules of the guy who wrote the game and, you know, babble on about whatever while we waited for Lyman to finish playing or whatever. And um, <laughs> so he took us to the bottom of the stairs and Congo was there. It hadn't been out on test yet. And he says, you know, I'm going to show you this game. It's called Congo. And, you know, it's not going out on test for a while. And we played it. But I, rem I remember sitting there at the bottom of the stairs, and Ted was playing. I mean, uh, Don was playing, and Ted was talking to him about the game and whatnot. And I was just kind of looking around, and I saw those stairs going up to pinball engineering. And there was like, there's like back glasses on the walls and stuff. And I just remember being kind of taken in by the the aura of the place. I mean, you know, I used to drive past the plant all the time. I lived blocks away from it because I lived in the city, and and. Uh, and to be inside and to, and to just sort of, you know, this is where the magic happens, really, really kind of um, stuck with me. And so um, it was probably a year or two later when I was, uh, when I was uh, ready to leave a job that I had that I contacted Ted almost basically on a lark and said, do you guys have any positions open? I'd be interested in coming in. He said, you know, we don't have any positions open in pinball, obviously. Um, the decline had, was already starting or well underway at that point, but um, um, but we've got some positions in the gaming department and working on slot machines, and maybe you'd want to come in and talk about that. And I said, yeah, sure. And so uh, I got to uh, come in and interview with him and Larry 
and uh, we talked about slot machines, and Larry talked to me about, you know, sort of how, how, how their ideas of what they want to do with slot machines worked, and I, and I got to talk to him with it, and it was, it was really intriguing because they were really trying to do a lot of things with slot machines that, they, that hadn't been done before, and they were trying to think of uh, slot machines in a new way, and obviously Larry and Ted are both really passionate and creative guys. And, um, and to my shock and bemusement, uh, they, they offered me a job. Um, certainly I did not have the technical know-how uh, really raw to get it. I mean, I've been programming for a number of years, but they were working with C++, and I had never worked with a, uh, even with any pointer language at all at that point. And, uh, and I can only assume that it was through uh, sheer passion and, uh, and desire that they offered me that job, and so I got to go and uh, work at Williams, and that was sort of how that happened. Well, let's talk about you. You, you mentioned kind of briefly um, that um, you kind of got into a skirmish with with a couple of these guys due to the devowling episode. Why don't you talk about that? Uh, basically, what happened was uh, when Roadshow uh, came out on test, uh, uh, a couple of friends and I made uh, the trek out to. I'm trying to remember what the name uh, of the. Oh, it was at Gala West, which was out in uh, I think countryside Illinois. I'm, I might, I probably have the town wrong now, but um, it was it was one of Williams' test locations, but it was way out in the suburbs, and uh, we made the trek out there to play it, and we were playing the game, and the game was um, it was fun and it was hilarious and stuff, but it kept draining me like mad. It's like these gaping outlanes, and then and then really dumb things would happen, like I would. I would miss a skill shot and the ball would drain and I wouldn't get it back and stuff like that. It's stuff like now I would sort of put aside as, as like pardon my dust text game stuff. But at the time the game was just infuriating me. It was really, really making me mad. And so I went out and I wrote this post to RGP slamming on Roadshow and how I thought it was terrible. It was pissing me off. And, um, I, I, uh, and I did so with the with this RGP internet practice, which uh, started which had started a while ago, um, where I devoweled it. And what that means is you you take the the vowels out of the name and replace them with asterisks, uh, as if the name was being spoken like a swear word. Um, this was something that I believe that Kevin Martin had started with a review that he had written about Dracula, a game that he uh, didn't like at all. And so I did that to Roadshow. And, uh, you know, a flurry of posts came. It's like, oh, my God, somebody devoured a Pat Lawler game. The world is ending and whatnot. And, and um, at the time, RGP was much more player-focused. It was much more about new games and rules and tournaments and things like that than it is now where it's much more about collecting and fixing and stuff like that. And so that was a big deal at the time. And, and, we, uh, and you know, everybody went back and forth about it and whatnot. And, um, and... Uh, they they kind of took offense to it, though, right? So that happened, and then it was a few months later, and I went to Pinball Expo, and Pat Waller had given his talk at Pinball Expo, his Pat Waller show thing that he used to do every year. And I didn't get to go because I was stuck at work. And I came in it was at, at uh, Expo about 5 or 6 o'clock, and I'm walking in, and Louis Kosiarz comes running up to me. And this was before he had gotten his job at Williams. And, and he said, you'll never guess what happened. You'll never guess what happened. And, and I'm like, what? What? And he said, Pat Waller was doing his thing, his show, and he said, oh, by the way, here's how you spell road show on the internet, and he wrote, and he wrote up on the blackboard that was there, R asterisk asterisk D S H asterisk W, and then he talked about, he made some comment about how people on the internet are jerks or something, and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, and then later, that was the same uh, time when I met Ted for the first time at that party, and he told me, you know, 
that at the time it's like you know you put a game out on test you're really frazzled you want it to sell you know you're you're you don't want to be known as the guys who made the game that bombed right and so and so you're really frazzled and you put it out there and the first thing that you hear is some guy coming on the internet who you don't even know and he's ripping your game apart and talking about what a piece of crap it is and it makes you really depressed and want to jump out a window right and 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 you're frazzled and you haven't had any sleep and everybody's totally stressed out and he's like you know you know obviously now time has passed and blah 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 but at the time it was it was like a big deal and it did not go over well with those guys but they all forgave me, and later on, when I got to when I got my job at Williams, Ted introduced me to Pat Lawler, and I'm like, "Oh, hi, nice to meet you, blah blah." Because I had never met him in person before that. And uh, Ted said, "Oh, by the way, Greg is the guy who devolved Roadshow on Rec Games Pinball," and I was like, "Oh my God, you had to bring that up, didn't you, Ted?" And you know, Pat was like, "Oh yeah, I guess you were. Well, you know, you're a jerk, but you're here now, so everything's cool." And then so that was sort of that. And, and I bet Ted was just, like, smiling and laughing while he was saying all that and listening to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he obviously... Uh, he's an instigator. He had been planning that moment for some time. Yeah, he's a known instigator. <laughs> <laughs> he's like that. He's a, kind of a funny guy, but he, he kind of likes, you know, doing that. Yeah. So Well, anyway, so you got into the slot department. Now, th- in the slot department, this was like when they had gone beyond the Model 400 slots, which just had reels, and now they're doing Dotmation, right? That's correct. Okay, so now you're working on, what was your first slot, the Monopoly Advanced to Boardwalk? That's correct. It was, uh, there, were, um, there were two slots that were made at the, the same time, and they were the first, um, they were the first um, slots from the licensed line of Monopoly, which obviously Williams has now taken. Are they still making Monopoly slots there? You know, I don't know. I... I I, I haven't heard. They, they must have made about a dozen or more uh, Monopoly models eventually, but these were the first two. Um, it was a big deal because Parker Brothers was notoriously protective of their uh, Monopoly brand, and Williams had previously tried to um, do a Monopoly pinball game and uh, been turned down by Parker Brothers, and that was the game that later became Safecracker um, that was originally going to be Monopoly. And so um, it was a big deal to, to have this license, and it was Williams's first big license and get it right. And so um, the game was already um, largely done from a math sort of and rule standpoint um, by Scott Slomiani, um, who's obviously worked dot matrix on pretty much every Williams game there was, um, and Bill Grupp, who was a software guy, also in pinball, who had gotten moved into slots. Um, and I joined them sort of doing uh, dot matrix work and choreography and, and things of that nature, sort of user presentation stuff, if you will. Now, the Monopoly Advanced Board, what, that was a dotmation slot? It was. Uh, yes. There so were actually both of the games um, that were done at that time uh, Monopoly Advanced to Boardwalk and Monopoly Roll and Win, which was done by another group, were Dotmation games. And so, just to let people know what Dotmation means is that you've got three mechanical reels that spin, but you also have a dot matrix screen above it, and the dot matrix screen is a larger one, like you, like Data East was using for like Baywatch and that. So it's 192 by 64 pixels, which is basically twice the size of a normal pinball dot matrix. That's correct. So you were doing. So you had an artist that did the animations, and then you were doing the sequencing, putting them together, programming them together for the actual animations, right? Yes. 
um, programming the sequences together, um, sort of uh, timing them together. With uh, I also did uh, light. I also did light shows. Um, for instance, if you've seen Advance from Boardwalk, it's got a very large um, Monopoly um, board on the back of it. Um, uh, so I did a lot of light shows um, for uh, when you play the bonus game on that game, you actually play a game of Monopoly. So I did all the stuff to move you forwards or backwards on the thing, or if it was in attract mode, to sweep across it and do all sorts of interesting things. A lot of light effects that I did on that I stole from from pinball and stuff that they used to do, and um, and and uh, a lot of synchronization with the sounds and the lights and the and the animations and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I I should make it clear though that. What Williams was doing with slot machines really, like as you kind of touched on, was kind of revolutionary. I mean, nobody had, like their IGT was the big competition, and they just had basically three reels with real basic sound. I mean, they're good, good basic slot machines, but the Dotmation Williams stuff was like the next step up. I mean, it really was a big deal. It was it was really interesting because uh, you know Williams was trying to break in and and um, and they had they had uh, sort of two things working against them. One was that obviously IGT was the big player on the block, and as a matter of fact, in slots, IGT was a lot uh, was very similar to Williams, as in pinball. Williams was to Data East and Premier and all the other pinball companies. IGT was the one who had all of the market share in uh, slots. And they would wield their their patents uh, in in court very often, and uh, Williams was the victim of one of those patent uh, disputes um, uh, over a patent called Telnus, which IGT had. Um, and the Telnus patent basically uh, defined a way to extend the odds of a physical real slot machine. And uh, you can sort of think of it if you take a slot machine at its most base level. I think of one reel with ten stops on it, right? And so, if you uh, if you're paying a dollar to play, and there are ten positions, um, there's only so, so many uh, levels of math that you can make that work at to to pay out a certain amount and keep a certain amount in order to make the game profitable. So, if you think of a game that costs a dollar to play, and nine of the reels don't give you anything, and the tenth reel gives you nine dollars. Then what's happening is that every ten roll, every ten spins, you're winning nine dollars and losing ten dollars, and so that machine would be said to pay ninety percent, and uh, because it's giving you ninety percent of what you gain, what you put into it. Um, but the highest payout that you can have on that is the amount that you've put in times ten, because I mean that's all of the because you're not going to pay out more than people put in, and even that you're not going to do because then it would pay out even money. So IGT made up a, a way to sort of Extend the odds of a physical um, of a physical slot machine uh, in software, so that it would it would assign spots um, um, spots in software to physical slots on the machine. So, for instance, it could have 999 spots mapped in software to nine slots on the machine, and then a thousand slot mapped to the one that pays. And now suddenly they can pay out a thousand dollars on a ten real slot machine and stuff. And so. Um, that was how they were able to do things like megabucks, which only have three reels, but are able to pay out, you know, several million dollars. And uh, Williams had fallen victim to a lawsuit from them, and so they had to a figure out a way to make uh, the slots pay uh, more because people were starting to expect that because of this uh, this technology that IGT had, and b sort of distinguish themselves mechanically from all of the other slot machines you know they they had learned through pinball that one of the things that got old slot machines i mean old pinball machines off the floor 
was technological upgrades, you know, going from going to solid state to uh, from uh, electromechanical made the old games obsolete, and going to dot matrix from uh, eight real dis- from eight uh, segment displays um, made the old games look obsolete. And so they were trying to figure out a way to dress up their games to make the old games look obsolete, so that they could sell and get more floor space. And um, but they were also trying to bring a lot of the fun of pinball and the humor and the presentation and the sound and all of that stuff from pinball um, to be a part of the slot machines as well. And so that was, you know, in a, in, in a too short but also in some ways too long uh, explanation of sort of what was going on there. Yeah, they were. Williams was the first company to use a, uh, like a bonus game in their slot machines. Magic Lamp didn't have any kind of bonus game, did it? It didn't have a bonus game, but it did have a thing where if you got a certain combination of... Uh, of uh, of spins on the of uh, whatever symbols in the window, it would give you a random multiplier. So it wasn't like a bonus game, but it was again a way of of a way of extending the payout uh, of the game um, through ways through uh, a way other than just what you could physically do with the reels. Right now, Monopoly had uh, advanced to Boardwalk actually had a bonus game though, right? Yeah, yeah. If you got. Uh, three Rich Uncle Penny bags anywhere in the windows, you would start the Monopoly bonus game and uh, and you would go up to the top and had this huge top box with a giant Monopoly board on it and uh, uh, Mr. Monopoly would spin the dice and if you landed on properties they would pay you coins and if you landed on uh, railroads they would pay you money and a community chest and, and uh, uh, chance paid you random awards and landing on jail made you lose, and if you passed go, you got bonuses and things like that. It was really cool. Hmm. So it was a way to get to give the player more money than just by spinning three reels. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, I thought um, I, I just picked up a magic lamp, and um, yeah, it's it's pretty. It's got really nice animations. I mean, like the the lamp opens up and like a UFO comes out and shoots ten x. So if you if you win, you get ten x the you know. 10x the the winnings, you know. Right. And and the guy and there's a guy that jumps out of the lamp and does a little dance and gives you something, you know, some other Rex factor. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we did on Monopoly was that if you went too long um, without winning anything, um, the we would make Richuckle penny bags do something funny on the screen. So like, I think it was if you went five five spins in a row without a win, he would kind of spin it. He would kind of, you know, go four and swing his cane, and it would, and a ball would fly off, and you'd hear a crashing car window sound or something like that. Or he'd uh, he'd float off the screen and come back off the side or stuff like this. And um, and you know, anything we could do to kind of keep the player engaged while going through inevitable streaks where nothing's really going on. Hmm. Now you did Palace of Riches too, right? I um, did some work on Palace of Riches. Um, which um, was mainly just to bring it into compliance with a uh, um, another state that we were trying to expand into. It was uh, um, what they were trying to do. Um, I mean, the state required them to to keep like 50 games worth of history in the machine, and we were only keeping 25 or something like that. And so I had to write a thing to extend uh, the the amount of. Uh, Information that was being kept in the game, and I think I had to keep more detailed information for it too. I think it was, I think it was Colorado. I can't remember now that I had to do those changes for. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, people are people are real. Uh, you know, they they got to understand that that slot machines are high security, and that that you know, like when, when if you pull the batteries out of your WPC pinball and you lose the audits, it's really no big deal. But if you do that on a slot machine, it's a huge deal. So there there's a lot of protection against that. Yeah, there is, and uh, you know, slot machines being a regulated industry, we always kind of always had to write software for the worst possible scenarios because it would sort of be, you know, Vegas was always sort of the baseline of, of the standards for any, any slot machines uh, rules in terms of what had to be kept and from, a, from a regulatory standpoint. But every, uh, every jurisdiction that opened up a, a new, that opened up to gaming um, had their own little tweaks and quirks for those rules that they had to imply. And so we always had to sort of write for the most stringent possible um, and it's interesting that you bring up power down because a great deal of our testing um, was centered around um, what happened if a game powered down in the middle of a spin or in the middle of a bonus game. Because the rule, of course, was it had to pick up exactly where it left off and that the, um, that the result had to be exactly what it would have been if the power had never been shut off in the first place. Um, and they had to, and they had to be able to survive for a certain number of hours with the power turned off, based on the battery that was uh, uh, on the CPU and stuff like that. And um, and we spent a great deal of time. Um, the guys in the testing lab would literally just sit there and at random just hit the power and bring it back up and see what happened, and you know just just make sure that everything was was working properly and getting the right information back. And you know they were they were infamous at just finding that one little gap of time in which nailing the power would cause everything to go kablooey and we'd have to handle it and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've got a winning streak, uh, which is a, a Larry DeMar slot machine out, out, out in the garage, and I was um, I was playing around with that during the bonus. That one has a bonus round where if you get whatever on the on the three reels it goes up to the dot matrix and 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 virtually spins those and you get additional coins until you until you lose but it, you basically just sit there and watch the game and i pulled the plug on it during that bonus round and brought it back up and yeah you like you said it takes off right where it left off mm-hmm. you know so if this is so unlike anything that pinball has to deal with oh yeah and um and they um and when you submit your games to the regulatory uh, agencies to be approved, um, at least in Vegas, you actually had to submit source code along with it, and you had to send a burned ROM, and they had to be able to compile your source code and burn a ROM that matched that ROM. And, and you know, there were all sorts of hoops that you had to go through to make sure that everything was, you know, just so. And then they put the ROM in the game, and it's got security tape over it and stuff like this. So it was a really really interesting industry to get into and uh it really kind of spawned in me a love for the gambling industry and gambling games in general and vegas because i used to go out there like two or three times a year as a part of my job um the whole industry is really really fascinating and uh and it's obviously changed a lot in the in the uh, 10 or so years since i worked at williams but uh, it was really cool it was a lot more interesting and fun than I ever expected it to be, and and that was only I mean to some extent it was because I found the um, working on the slots really interesting and I got into that uh, as a department. But in some, but I mean to great extent it was also because I was working with people who were really really creative and really talented and really inspiring. But I also got to be on the same floor as pinball, and you know I would hang out 
when I first started, uh, Lyman was working on uh, Monster Bash, and we used to every day at 5 o'clock, me and him and Vince Potterelli, and then a few months later when Keith Johnson started, he would play with us too. We would get together and play Monster Bash, and we would just play for the longest time. It was so much fun. Those guys were hilarious. It's like we would just completely trash talk each other and just go on and on about, oh, my God, that ball wants out so bad. You're so doomed and, and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, when Phantom Flip was st- first starting to be tested, it was notoriously unreliable. And Vince started up this thing where you know, the lights for Phantom Flip were blue, and, and when you lit Phantom Flip, he would be, oh, my God, your stinky blue friend is here, and, and all this stuff. Uh, a lot of that, those quotes and stuff ended up, uh, we ended up doing a recording session down in the sound lab, and uh, they got used for the Lyman's Lament mode on Monster Bash. It was a ton of fun, and I loved, I loved watching the games as they came up and, and, um, and, you know, talking to people. You know, the doors were always open. Um, you could always walk in and just jab about, about whatever happened or go to lunch or every day at 3 o'clock somebody would call snacks and a whole group of people would go down to the cafeteria and, and get stuff out of the machines and sit around and gap about whatever. And, and, and it was a really great, interactive, passionate, uh, you know, environment. I've, I've never worked in a place like that ever since. Hmm. Yeah, the, the, in Lyman's Lament, just a... Uh, I think a lot of people maybe don't even know about that in Monster Bash. So you have to enter a set of flipper codes before you hit the start button, and it's really, I, I, it's to me, it's the best part of the game. I love playing Lyman's Lament. There is actually a way to get it just by playing the game. It is an actual award, and uh, I'm I forget what you have to do to get it, but it's something that's like you know that you would never do normally. I think that like. If I can't, I can't remember, but there are like uh, um, there's 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 uh, when you go into the scoop and it gives you a random award, and the random award is the name of one of the venues that the band is played at throughout the world. And there's like you know 50 venues or something like that. And if you collect them all, it gives you Lyman's Lament and I, I or something. I can't really remember what the deal was, but yes, most people do it by by using the the flipper code that you have to do before you start your game to uh, get it, which I believe. Uh, if I recall correctly, translates to Keith Johnson's initials, K-E-F. Yeah, there's and just some some people don't know what flipper codes are, but basically, you have to what you hit both flippers together in some amount of time, and that's kind of a reset. And then you have to tap the left one and the right one a certain number of times, and and you're entering each letter in, in, in kind of like a Morse code almost. Yeah, I mean, um, um, it would be basically. Um, for instance, uh, in all of George Gomez's games uh, at Williams, he had a flipper code, which were his initials, and it would show the credits for the game. And so you'd hit both flippers, and then you'd hit the left flipper uh, seven times, right? So A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then you'd hit the right flipper, and then his middle initials A. And so you'd hit the left flipper once, and then the right flipper, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven on the left flipper for G again, and then the right flipper in the credits roll. And so there are all sorts of flipper codes, some very well known, some not at well not not at all known in games uh for various things and and um and yeah, the Lemon's Lament is one of those. Yeah, in the in and what it comes down to is the the left flipper button is is the letter and the right flipper button is like enter for that, you know. Right. Yeah. Although on some games they do it with the right flipper button is the letter and the left flipper button is enter. And to some extent, that just depended on who was programming the game or whose idea it was or whatever. And then I think 
at Stern, I think the flipper codes are like, they have to be four letters or something like that. There's all sorts of different ways to do it, depending on who was working on it or whatever. Yeah, Lyman's Lament, I think you hit, um, you got to hit both together, then 11 left, one right, five left, one right, six left, one right. And after you do that, it'll say totally, and uh, then you'll be in, in Lyman's Lament, and you could start a game or something like that. Right. I think you have to do that before you start a game. And then, uh, and that, and that again is, uh, Keith Johnson's initials, K-E-F. And, uh, and if you start the game, then, um, I think that the first time that you shoot into the scoop, you'll get Lyman's Lament, which is something like, you get 50x bonus, and then for the rest of the game, it's giving you these, these wacky quotes. Right, right. And, and the quotes just kill me. I mean, it's just, it, Lyman just sounds so, you know, I don't so Lyman-ish, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who knows Lyman recognizes that uh, instantly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I always thought I, I thought it was like really entertaining, you know. So, but uh, you know, it's wacky. A lot of ways, uh, uh, Monster Bash was the um, game uh, that I've been involved in in the industry that I have the most fond memories of, even though I never worked on it, um, because I love Lyman. He's he's a great friend of mine, and. It was when I had first started, so I was really excited to be at Williams, and it's a fantastic game, and I got to watch it sort of build up piece by piece over time, and it was, you know, the first time I had ever seen that, and, uh, and, and, uh, I just, it was a really, it was just a really great time, uh, for me then, and I've got a lot of really fond memories about Monster Bash because of that. Alright, we're gonna take a little break from talking with Greg Dunlop, and we'll be right back after these messages. Deep in the forests of eastern Canada, you will find something, well, groundbreaking. And something that's very, very pinball, but something that's really, really small. Presenting classic Playfield reproductions. Two guys in their basements. We've got the passion, we've got the gear, and we've got the quality doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts. Classic Playfield Reproductions. Playfields. Back glasses. Plastic sets. On the web at classicplayfields.com Alright, we're back with more interview with Greg Dunlop here on TopCast. Kind of back to the slots a little bit, um, just because I, I've kind of gotten into the into collecting the Williams slot machines. They're really hard to come by. I mean, at the time, Williams had like one percent market share, and IGT was just like killing them, just like you said. But uh, another one that you did was Riverbell Twenty One, which was kind of like a slot machine with uh, like a blackjack built into it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think if I recall correctly, I got kind of handed that game. Um, it wasn't quite finished, and the programmer had gotten taken off to another pro- project, and I got um, handed the game, and I had to finish it off. And if I recall correctly, it never got approved for Vegas. It got there was something in in the uh, in the way that the cards, because you know it had a kind of a blackjack theme along with it too. If I recall correctly, it was like if you were dealt blackjack at the same time as a winning real spin then there was a multiplier or something like that i can't remember but i think there was something about the way that it determined the cards that uh made it not uh approved for vegas and so obviously it's not uh very well uh distributed there's a rule in vegas that says that 
if you um, put a if you put a, re a digital representation of a physical thing onto a slot machine, then it has to retain the same odds as the physical thing would. So, for instance, if you had uh, if you had a digital uh, animation of dice rolling, then the results for each individual die had to be one in six. And if you had a digital representation of di of cards being dealt, then your individual chance of any card had to be one in fifty-two. And um, in advance to boardwalk, um, we we had we uh, rigged the spins uh, or the dice rolls per se quote dice rolls. And so uh, you'll notice that in the animations for advance to boardwalk, when you're moving your piece, it's uh, Mr. Monopoly tas ta taps a couple of buttons on his thing, and a number appears on the screen because we couldn't do it with dice because we are messing with the with the odds of getting any particular space. Huh. Um, and I think that Riverboat Gambler fell victim to, to something in, in that area. But, I mean, um, it was a game that I didn't do a lot on, and I don't remember it very well. Hmm. Yeah, I, those, um, a lot of those Dotmation titles, you, you just don't really see. They they're really are hard to find, you know? Yeah, I mean, you, I remember when I first started at Williams, um, we, we, we actually knew where every single Williams game in Vegas was. And whenever one of us would go to Vegas, we would actually go and go through the strip and check them out and make sure the DMDs weren't getting burned in and that people were playing them. And if we noticed people being confused by something or if, you know, we sat around. Uh, the, I remember there was a bank at the Luxor of like six um, of six dot matrix games. You'd sit around and watch it for half an hour. And if nobody came by, then you could say it was dead or whatever. And people would come back with these trip reports about you know all of the about how the games were doing and what they noticed and things like this and uh, and you know obviously now you could never do a things like that i mean williams williams uh, games are pervasive all over the place well yeah because what when during the um the lawsuits with IGT basically what it did is it forced Williams into the video slot arena much more strongly because IGT didn't really hold any patents in that in that area right the telnus patent was a way to extend the odds of, of physical reels but for, for video slots, that didn't that whole thing didn't apply at all. And um, right around the time that Monopoly was coming out, um, Williams was also having some success in the video slot side with a game called Reelman, um, which was um, kind of inspired by uh, there was a there was a company called Aristocrat uh, from Australia that did a lot of video slots um, in Australia, but they had never really caught on over here. And uh, it was sort of an attempt to replicate that style of game, and that obviously gained some momentum, and now that's pretty much all you see in Vegas these days. Yeah, I mean, uh, the physical slot machines are really, really, I mean, the, the video slots have really taken over the physical slots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there are, you know, real, real slots, as it may be, are really seem to be kind of a thing of the past now. Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, and and Williams has really excelled at the video at the even you know the video slots. I mean, they do you know they're kicking. They seem to be kicking some butt. You know? Oh yeah, I mean their games are extremely popular. I mean, they're uh, I have some friends who still work there, and they're growing like mad at this point. And um, I keep hearing about how they're taking over more and more uh, of the space that uh, Midway um, at the Williams. Uh, at the site at, at uh, California Roscoe in Chicago, um, Williams was on one side of the street of uh, one side of Roscoe, and Midway was on the other side of Roscoe. And uh, Williams uh, at some point crossed over and started taking up space in the Midway building. 
and uh, and has been growing and growing more and more into their space. Hmm. Um, and I, and you know, obviously they're doing very well. I don't uh, really follow that industry the way that I used to, but um, but uh, I mean, I still have some friends who work in it. So everything I hear is that they're doing great. Yeah, and it's interesting that some of the slots, the Dotmation slots, were developed by pinball guys. Like I heard that Lyman Sheets worked on Mermaid's Gold, which is another Dotmation Williams slot. That's correct. I mean, uh, Scott uh, Scott Solmiani obviously worked on a bunch of Scott, uh, slots. Um, Scott and Bill Grupp did uh, Big Bang Piggy Banking, which was really the first big uh, bonus game hit that uh, um, that Williams had. John Yowsey did art for a lot of slots. Kevin O'Connor did art for some slots. Um, Keith Johnson, I don't think he was working on a new version of uh, of uh, Winning Streak, if I recall correctly, that I don't think ever got finished. When, but he got hired into the slot division. Duncan Brown got hired into the slot division, and then went on to move to work on Pinball 2000. Um, you know, lots and lots of those people uh, had a lot of influence on those games early on. Now, do you know who did um, the the Jackpot series? You know, Jackpot Party, Jackpot Limbo, and Jackpot Stampede, which were all like those are like the most popular Dotmation Williams games. There was um, Jackpot Party was being done while I was there. It was done by a guy named Al, I have forgotten his name now, his last name. Him and his brother Ben um, worked at Williams, and they were designers, and, um, and they did that game, and it was immensely popular, obviously. It was really, really well-received, and it had that bonus game where you chose the slides and stuff like that. And uh, we, we played the hell out of that game on the floor. It was really fun. They're still making versions of that for video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to find a jackpot stampede. That's the one I'm looking for. Those guys are still in the. Um, those guys are still in the industry. I believe uh, Al is is working at Williams again. He had gone to IGT right around the time when uh, I uh, when I was there, and then he came back to Williams, if I recall correctly. Now, were you around for um, uh, you know Black the Black Monday of pinball in 1999? I was. I was. Tell me about that. So, um, so well, I mean, first, first. Uh, I'll roll it back a little, you know. Um, obviously, the time came when um, everybody was talking about what they were going to do because things were pretty doom and gloom um, around the time when, you know, um, uh, when I got there, which would have been around 99, I suppose, at this point. And, uh, and, and uh, they had already been through two major rounds of layoffs. And, uh, and you know, there was a lot of rumor-mongering and stuff going on the floor about how long we were going to be able to keep it up at this point. I mean, you know, we were talking about games that are that are shipping, you know, 1,200 to 1,500 units, which is a long, uh, which is a long ways from 20, 23,000 in a year, which was what Adam's family was doing. And and so, um, one of the things that was being worked on when I was there was uh, a game that John Papaduke had put together with a uh, big. Uh, video monitor in the in, in the back box where the back glass would be basically, and him and Cameron were were working on some stuff like that with that. And I remember thinking that that was uh, interesting, but uh, you know, it would probably it would probably boost things some. But I was I was hard pressed to see how it was going to be um, something that blew everything away. Um, and I knew it was going to be more expensive and heavy to ship and whatnot. And so I was like, but it was cool. I mean, it was really cool. And so, um, but. Eventually, obviously, and everybody knows this story, uh, uh, George and Pat went off in their garage, and I wasn't even really aware that this was going on at the time. All that I knew was that one day George uh, came into the office and he had something under a blanket in, his, in, his, in there, and, um, 
and you know he was discreetly he showed it to management and then he was starting to discreetly show it to some people on the floor and, and I remember asking Tom Uban about it and Tom Uban kind of uh, drew me a, a lunch napkin uh, um, drawing of it Tom Uban the software engineer he did a, he worked with George on a lot of games like Corvette and uh, he kind of drew me a, a lunchbox, a lunch napkin drawing of what Pinball 2000 was. And I remember looking at it and saying, what the hell is this? You've got to be on crack, right? And then um, the first time that I got to see it, I remember thinking that it was cool. But what really blew my mind was that um, uh, it was uh, uh, Pinball 2000, the, the prototype that those guys made was done on an old Amiga PC. And Scott Slomiani had, uh, had had a lot of experience working on the Amiga with uh, doing some animation with the paint program that's built into it, and so what he what Scott did was he opened up the game and and uh, kind of pulled out the mouse and put together these little animations of uh, of um, of like little smiley faces or something popping up and down out of the screen on top of where drop targets were, and then he ran it. And I remember seeing it and kind of shooting with these animations going on, and I remember being completely blown away. I was completely floored. It was, it was, you know, when they launched Pinball 2000, they, they the slogan was sort of, uh, "You've got to see it to believe it," and that was completely true. You could have somebody tell you for an hour what it was like and have no idea until you played it, and then you were like, and then you just instantly got it. And so um, they started building that, and I got to say that watching that happen was one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life. I mean, everybody just came together and just just bolted and poured everything they had into making this thing work. It was um, it was really mind-blowing. Just I mean, from a raw engineering perspective, obviously you could fill a room with the upgrades that they made to the system, both from a software and a hardware standpoint. But I mean, when I think about the the creativity and the and the the sort of just just raw passion and desire that went into and and creativity that went into doing that it was uh it was really really mind-blowing to watch happen and really really mind-blowing to be a part of even as peripherally as i was which was basically none other than you know trying to lend moral support to people and and and, and being amazed at it happening um and it was really it was really an amazing experience going out to uh this place town and country mall which had a uh, arcade which is now closed and um and going out there for the day that Revenge from Mars launched, and there was sort of, you know, they had champagne out there and toasted it, and it was a really, really, you know, triumphant getting that getting that to happen, and it was uh, and it was really exciting, and uh, there was a lot of it, it was it, it was very cautious optimism, right? Everybody was happy to be done and and thought that we had created an amazing thing, but uh, um, thought that they had created an amazing thing, but it was really, you know, I mean, obviously there was a lot of work to be had and. And you know nobody really knew what was going to happen, and it sold well. And then, and then, uh, but then, uh, and I remember uh, it was right around that time, or a little after, when uh, Larry Demar resigned and left Williams, which, uh, which was really um, um, distressing to me because Larry's not only an amazing guy, but he's an amazing leader, and he was an amazing manager for everybody. Um, and so, it was really kind of um, distressing to me personally when he left. And then, you know, as the Star Wars thing happened. There's the thing that everybody knows about when uh, when uh, they had gotten really good pre-orders, and then Neil decided to raise the price, and then the pre-order some of the, a bunch of the pre-orders got canceled, and there were rumors and stuff going on, and you know, it was it was all very for a long t- for a while there it was very 
everybody was working and everybody was excited about working on their games, but it was all kind of, you know, fatalistic too. And, and, I, was, and I was sitting around and I was kind of, you know, me and uh, Ted Estes and Bill Grupp uh, were working on an operating, a new operating system for the slot machines. And, I, and, uh, and we were kind of waiting to see, really we were kind of waiting to see what would happen. Uh, from my perspective with pinball to see if they would need to bring a new design team or something on or need some more people and um, and I was I remember thinking for quite a while that uh, um, that that this was like I was really starting to get worn down by the politics of it and by you know everything I had always kind of been worried about happening in pinball if I got a job right which is that it, it would become a job and it would become more about the business of making pinball than it was about making pinball, right? And I didn't even make pinball again, but, but you know, internally, this is the kind of things that I was feeling, and I was starting to think about what my next move was going to be and things like that when we got this operating system done. And then for a while, uh, uh, it was a couple of weeks before Expo of uh, 99, and um, um, Larry kind of said, you know, to, to, um, to Lyman and or Cameron, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, we could bring these uh, these Star Wars Episode ones in there and, you know, all of these games have networking in them, and wouldn't it be cool if there was some way to kind of network the games to report high scores for the tournament or something like that? It was a very kind of off-the-cuff kind of comment, I believe, uh, that uh, started this all. And uh, Lyman and, I believe, Tom and, and Cameron kind of ran with that and created this system, which many people, I'm sure, have seen, um, which was that at Pinball 2000, everybody, I mean, at, at Expo in 99, everybody who wanted to play in the tournament went up to a counter and got their picture taken. And that picture got printed onto a laminated card with a barcode on it. And all of the games at the tournament had barcode readers on them. And so what would happen is you would walk up, you would swipe your card, and you would start your game. And then at the end of the game, you would put in your um, initials, and they would be tied back to your card, and the the scores would be reported to a central server, and the and those scores were then listed up on a screen that scrolled by throughout the uh, throughout the tournament. And so it was really live, real time pinball scoring. It was really really amazing. And they threw it together in almost no time. And the uh, the back end that they were using to create the cards was this Java app, and Lyman built it. He'd never used Java before, and just walked in one day with a pile of Java books to build this app. And uh, it was it was it was it was cool to see because it was something that they were all building that they didn't have to that they were building because they wanted to because it would be fun because it would be cool to show off and that um, and and that they were all excited about doing and it was really really great it was um, I've still got my little card it has a picture of Patrick McEwen from the Prisoner on it for my for my ID and. Um, I remember it was about it was like the day before they were going to ship all of the all of the games to Expo. No, they had already shipped all the games to Expo, and I was in Lyman's, I mean uh, Cameron's office, and and um, and he was like hacking away at some at some last minute code fixes, and we were going to drive up to Expo together. And uh, I was I was sitting there thinking that uh, you know I was sort of feeling good again about pinball that this was really really awesome to see and I was excited and we went there and everything ran great I mean um, I remember there being some pretty long lines to get your picture taken at first but uh, everything ran great and Pinball Expo Lewis had always told me and it's true that Pinball Expo was a time to sort of be rejuvenated about pinball again you know you spend a week 
you spend a year dealing with management and getting your games done and not sleeping and reading your games being trashed on RGP and all of this stuff. But you go to Pinball Expo and you play again and you remember what's fun about pinball again and you interact with players again and and you you give talks about the things that you've done and you meet with people and everybody's together and and it's rejuvenating it reminds you of what you were there for and and so um they put all this stuff together for Star Wars and it was great and it was cool and I went to Pinball Expo and it was great and it was cool and it was really exciting and my friend Noel won the tournament and he got to take a Star Wars home and that was cool and and it was all and I remember I came into work on Monday and I felt like really excited to be to be there again and then everybody got fired. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, were you you were actually at work for Black Monday then? Oh yeah, I was. I used to come in pretty early, and uh, Scott Slomiani used to always come in early from uh, from the suburbs um, to avoid traffic. And Scott um, called me and said that he had. Uh, called TAG, who are the people that print the playfields, and um, he was inquiring about the status of the, um, of the playfield um, tests they had done. They were doing some test prints for the art for uh, wizard blocks, and uh, he had called them up to, um, to inquire about the status of that, and they told him, oh, you're, uh, we're not supposed to talk to you until after you have your meeting. And so Scott came into my office and told me that, and I was like, oh, shit. And then, and then uh, you know, more and more things started kind of filtering through. And uh, I remember I got online, and Keith Johnson had just gotten up, and I was like, you know, you might want to get in here because something's going on. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, this note appeared on the door to engineering saying there will be a, you know, staff meeting at noon in the cafeteria and uh, everybody got uh, escorted out of the building. They weren't allowed back to their desks at all. Um, and um, and uh, it was a week later when everybody got to come back and, uh, and clean out. And that was a long week. I mean, uh, me and Ted and a few of the other slot guys were still up there. But other than that, the entire floor was uh, completely empty, and it was uh, not, a pleasant, not a pleasant time. So now how did you get back into pinball and working and working for Stern um, well um, we had sort of um, we had sort of uh, da, 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 da. so um, when I had gotten my job in slots I'd, uh, I basically sort of a bunch of us had sort of said to Ted you know we promised to finish this project and you know if a job comes up in pinball we won't take it We'll stay with you and finish this, and then whenever we finish, whatever it's done is done. And so one day, um, you know, uh, the pinball archiving happened, and uh, and everybody was gone, and more and more they started tearing out part of the floor to bring accounting up there, and our project was going on longer than we wanted it to. And finally, one day, Ted sort of came around and said, uh, you know, you know, I'm job hunting, and you all can go job hunting if you want to. And so I was like, yay, finally, because you know. There were a lot of, you know, it just was not the same being there, and I was really only staying around to finish sort of what I had started for him. And so uh, I found a job in a, at a Internet startup uh, consulting firm for a while that was okay, but it wasn't, for a lot of reasons, was not working out very well. Um, the, the guys who ran the place were real characters. They were really uh, interesting guys. Uh, um, the, one of the owners... Uh, would not be unheard of to come in with his with his hand all bandaged up because he had gotten a bar fight the previous night and stuff and so uh, really good guys but not uh, 
not necessarily the people you want for your boss, uh, but I really liked him a lot. And so uh, I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And we had periodically uh, gotten uh, um, together with everybody from Williams for lunches, uh, Willie lunches, where we'd gather everybody together to, uh, that we could for lunch somewhere. And uh, one week, uh, Ted um, hosted one. Uh, um, him and Bill Grupp and a few other people had gotten a job at Cisco Systems. And so um, he, there was a pizza place downstairs from Cisco, and he hosted a Willie lunch. And we got together, and we were eating. And it was in, you know, early November or something. And Pat was there, and he was talking. And he had, uh, by this point, he had formed Pat Lawler Design with uh, Lewis and John Crutch. And he was talking about how they were um, making a pinball for Stern and how he was having some problems getting it done because Lewis was trying to learn the system. And, um, and they didn't really have an artist uh, at the time who was helping him out. And he was having a hard time working with the dot system and stuff like that. And I said... Again, just basically, as a lark, I said, well, if you ever need any help, I'm here. And, and he said, well, why don't you give me a call after Thanksgiving? And, um, and I said, sure. And so I did give him a call, and I went out there to Marengo, where he lived, uh, which was when there's no traffic, an hour-and-a-half drive from Chicago, but there was never no traffic. And um, I drove out there, and uh, they were working out of Pat's house at the time, and uh, they showed me Monopoly, um, which they had in a whitewood form, pretty close to what uh, was there in the end. And uh, I played it for a while, and it was really cool, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, I really liked that play field a lot. And so uh, we talked for a while, and he ended up offering me a job, and it was like kind of a, it's like, you know, we're a small company, and we're working on this stuff, and I can offer you a job where you're making uh less money than you are now and you'll work longer hours and you'll have less benefits and you'll get to drive an hour and a half each way when there's no traffic but there's never no traffic and um and i was like huh okay and so i was uh i spent i spent a little time kind of uh mulling it over and uh with my girlfriend at the time and she was really down on the idea because you know it's not exactly you know getting into the pinball industry at that point was not exactly you know the stability choice to make or anything like that and I was trying to think about what I wanted to do and um, and uh, at some point I was downstairs playing uh, my Twilight Zone because I had a Twilight Zone and I went down there and I was playing it and and I remember stopping and staring at it and I'm like what am I still sitting here thinking about this is like what I've always wanted to do and and there's no reason why I shouldn't and and you know if it falls apart, I'll get a job somewhere else, and that'll be life. And so I said yes, and I went to work for uh, for Pat. Now, what were you doing for, on Monopoly? Um, a lot of the same kind of stuff that I was doing for slots. I was um, doing a lot of work in the dot matrix, uh, a lot of um, choreography, you know, presentation kind of stuff, music, light shows, all of that kind of thing. Now, were you actually designing the actual graphics, or did somebody else do that? No, we had an artist who was doing graphics for us, and uh, basically he would send me the uh, artwork that he had created in some wacky art format that I don't remember what it was. And we had a series of tools that uh, converted them into code, and then the code got loaded, and you could uh, put you could sort of string uh, frames of animation together, basically. And how was it working with the Stern system compared to you know say the Williams dot you know dot system in slots? I mean, it was completely different. Uh, I had never. First of all, I had never done assembly uh, 
programming before, so that was brand brand new for me. It was like I went from one uh, one obscure system that I knew nothing about to an even more obscure system that I knew nothing about, and um, and so that was that was a real challenge for a while. Um, and um, but other than that, I mean, uh, one of the things that they did in the dot matrix system at Stern is they kind of had this little macro language, so you ended up spending a lot of time not actually writing assembly as it were and so uh, and I obviously had a very large code base, base code base of games to draw um, examples from and stuff like that um, but one of the things that I definitely wanted to do and uh, from the perspective of someone who wanted to get in and make an impact quickly was uh, there was a lot of a lot of things about the dot matrix for for Data East and Sega games had really bugged me over the years and one was that they had a font which was their default font for a lot of things like replay and tilt and stuff like that, which was a 32 pixel high, and it had a shadow, and uh, I hated it. I despised that font, and so one of my keys was I'm never using this font again. And then, um, but the other thing was they they tended to sort of do when they did graphics, they tended to do a lot of stuff which had uh, um, backgrounds in which all of the dots were on instead of leaving it all black. Uh, a lot of stuff that did flashing of the entire screen. Um, a lot of a lot of fonts that I felt were kind of kludgy, and so I wanted to give everything a sort of more subtle Williamsy feel. I spent I actually spent some time looking at Twilight Zone, looking at how the animations kind of transitioned in and out of each other. That I tried to implement some of that, and I tried to get some more blocky, readable fonts under the screen. And so that was a lot of what I was trying to do from the dot perspective when we uh, when we were working on that game. Yeah, the just to make it clear to people that the uh, the system between Williams and 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 Data East slash Stern or whatever was completely different. They had a separate computer that ran the animations on the dot matrix display for Stern, where Williams in their WPC system had basically one sixty eight oh nine that ran everything. You know, so you had to communicate. Um, yeah, uh, I believe that was. Uh Yes, yes, that's right. And uh, um, one of the things that made that interesting um, from the perspective of working on it from the software side is that your code base for for um, working on the dots is completely distinct from the code base of the guy who's working on the game, right. as it were. Um, this has some pluses and minuses. A plus is that um, it makes it much easier to just work on the dots and to sort of if I needed to work at home or stuff like that, I could do it much more easily because I didn't have to worry about my code uh, causing conflicts with the code that Lewis was working on on the game side. But on the other hand, it also made it much more difficult to synchronize um, events um, from the in uh, from the dot matrix to the to the game because we couldn't send uh, we couldn't send signals back. And so, doing things like uh, if you wanted to have a sound play at an exact frame of a dot matrix animation you couldn't really do that because uh because the dot matrix couldn't fire off sounds and so you had to spend a lot of time tweaking it just to get things to line up just right hmm. that's interesting i mean uh yeah i guess i guess yeah like you said there's positives and 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 mi- minuses to that yeah at williams in the slot side um we we uh we could send signals at uh specific frames of the animation back to the uh Back to the back to the um, calling the computer main game program, and that made it really easy to to um, to synchronize uh, sounds and, and animations together. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So yeah. So you had to have everything. Basically, you had the calling computer doing a call to the dot matrix, and you had to know how long it would take until it got to the point where you would 
and, and then de- basically sit there and delay the calling computer until you want it to fire us, have it fire off a sound at a specific time interval. What we actually did mo- usually was uh, we would adjust the speed that the animation played. Um, so we usually wouldn't rely on anything on the uh, on the CPU side. Basically, what I would always do is just adjust how fast the dot matrix uh, played its animation in such a way that the calls and the frames that I wanted would tie together properly. Hmm. Interesting. That's an interesting way to do it. Yeah. Huh. Well, cool. Easier. Yeah. So now, so you did that on Monopoly, and then you were working on Roller Coaster Tycoon right from the beginning then, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Monopoly, we worked on it for a while. Um, I was sort of getting my feet wet. Um, it was really cool. I had a lot of fun working on it. One of the things that I really missed working for Pat during that period was that, um, you know, it was a lot different from working at Williams because um, it wasn't as kind of collaborative. I mean, we were all there, and me and Lewis would work together, but A, the schedule was much was much tighter than most of the games that Williams would work on, and B, you know, there weren't 30 other engineering engineers around constantly coming into your, your office saying, oh, this is stupid, or why did you do that, or here's this bug, or whatever, and things like that. And so um, it was much more isolated, which was... Um, which I, I feel was to the detriment of the games. I mean, there was nothing to be done about it, obviously, but I think, I think a lot of those games would have come out a little better if there had been more, uh, more people around to, uh, to, to voice to them. Just, just, I mean, and for me, just from a work environment standpoint, it would have been a lot cooler. But, um, but uh, we, did, uh, we did Monopoly, and it was really cool, and uh, I have lots of pictures and, and, uh, and uh, good memories about when we first went on test and, you know, um, it was a really great experience for me to see my first game out on test, and and I and you know I remember very distinctly the first time that I saw my initials go by in the attract mode and stuff like that, and uh, and um, and that was all really cool. And uh, being at the plant when the first games went off the line, and all of that um, was really was really great. And uh, then yeah, we started doing Roller Coaster Tycoon. Um, Pat had wanted to do another uh, theme park game. And uh, because it was stern, we needed to have a license, and um, and so we had all been playing a lot of Roller Coaster Tycoon, and uh, Cameron had uh, kind of turned us on to it because Cameron's a roller coaster nut, and uh, he had been playing the game a lot, and, and uh, we decided that this would be a good license and it wouldn't be too expensive, and we could build a game up around it. Were you happy with how uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon came out? Well, um, we we built it and uh, it went on. Uh, we built it, and you know, it went through a lot of iterations and stuff. And we took it to a show, and it's a good game. It's a great playfield. I really, really enjoy that playfield a lot. It had a really cool feature that Pat was trying to design into it for a while, where one of the ramps would actually go under the playfield and then come back out again, kind of like a roller coaster going to a tunnel. He couldn't make it work out in such a way that it was, you know, realistic. But uh, that would have been really cool. And um, but. Um, um, it was it, it was the first game that I worked on start to finish, and um, I kind of had some conflicts with Pat about how the rules were going. Um, Pat is an amazingly creative guy, and he's a fantastic person, and I really like him a lot. But uh, we just had a lot of different ideas about how our rules should go, and um, he really, really kind of really um, 
um, held the lock to getting uh, anything done on his games. And I can hardly blame him. I mean, you know, he's going out there and he's got a business, and he's. Uh, I would probably be exactly the same way if I was running the games. But on the other hand, I wanted to be in a situation where I could have a lot more input um, outside of just sort of the area of work that I was doing. And so to some extent, um, I, I like Roller Coaster Tycoon, and I would love to have one someday. We don't get a... At Williams, they got games for really cheap after they uh, uh, for the people who designed them, and at Stern they never did. So I don't actually have any of the games that I worked on. Um, but um, but uh, I was also starting to get a little frustrated because you know I waited so long to get into pinball, and I really wanted to sort of make my make have a stamp on the games and have and have a ability to sort of. Uh, you know, get my input into them and my spin on them, and I was and I was finding myself frustrated that that kind of wasn't happening, and so um, uh, we put out Roller Coaster Tycoon, and and uh, um, we were starting to work on uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Um, that came about sort of in a similar way to Roller Coaster Tycoon, which was that Pat wanted to do a sort of creepy kind of haunted house game, and we were kind of looking around at licenses and. Um, this was one that came to him, and so they were starting to work on Replace Believe It or Not. And uh, around that time, um, the guy who I'd been working for at the Internet Startup, uh, before I started at PLD, approached me. I'd, I saw him at a concert, and, and um, he, he said, uh, you know, we're struggling, we really need some help, would you be interested in coming back to work for us? And, and, you know, he offered me a lot more money, a lot more benefits, and I wouldn't have to drive an hour and a half every day. And I was sort of thinking, you know, this, this is... Uh, Maybe this this is something that I should do, and that you know, I don't. I, um, given the fact that I'm uh, a little frustrated at the way that things are going at Pat's place, um, combined with the fact that uh, uh, you know all of this other stuff that that I was having to drive an hour and a half each way. Actually, at the time, uh, Pat eventually moved out of his house into an office in a nearby town, so I finally got to take the train at some point. But still, three hours out of your day every day, and so um, I decided to. Um, take that uh, opportunity and go to work for him again. Um, but one thing that happened out of that is that um, I made, uh, I told Pat, I was like, you know, I could still, um, you know, again, because the the dot matrix system is, is so distinct and easy to work on remotely, I offered to uh, freelance um, and, and work on games for him uh, as, as needed, and I made an agreement with my new boss that uh, I could make some time periodically to do that. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, it sounds I, I I talk about it, and it sounds like I'm I'm like uh, complaining about it, and it's not really. It's just it's just a situation that that wasn't working out for me uh, personally. It's not like Pat was a jerk or anything like that, because I love Pat. And I've got an enormous amount of respect for him. He's a great guy. Uh, it's just a situation that, because of a lot of factors, wasn't really working out uh, for me the way that I had hoped. Now, now, Lewis uh, also uh, kind of retired from Pat Lawler Design, too. That was about the same time? No, no, that was uh, several games later. I mean, uh, I, I freelanced remotely for Pat on uh, Please Believe It or Not, and then after that game, um, he started putting together NASCAR, and uh, it was around that time that I moved to Seattle from Chicago. And then I worked on NASCAR and Grand Prix here um, as a freelancer, and and it was after NASCAR um, and into Family Guy, I believe, that uh, that Lewis left. Do you, do you know anything about the circumstances behind that? Not really. I mean, you know, I can I can uh, I mean I know he had a he had a baby around that time, and uh, you know he was probably he was probably going through a lot of the same 
sort of decisions about uh, pinball and family and drive and stuff like that. But uh, I, other than that, all I know is that he left and he got a job. He's working for a, a, a cell phone software uh, company uh, closer to home. Right, right, because he was probably making the same three hours worth of travel time a day. It wasn't quite that bad. He was about halfway between where I lived and where Pat lived, so it was probably only about an hour and a half round trip rather than an hour and a half each way. But, but still, you know... Um, Obviously, that's that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of time to be spending on the road. Right, right, right. So then, you did NASCAR and Grand Prix. You did the animations for that. Yeah. Okay, and for the whole game. Yeah. Okay, and any uh, any good experiences, with, you know, or stories related to those two games? Not really. I mean, uh, as as um, you know, it was always a lot of fun working with those guys because I really liked I really liked them a lot, and. Um, Lewis and John and Pat are all are all you know fantastically talented and uh, and passionate guys. Not not enough can ever be said about John Crutch's uh, contributions to pinball. I mean, he was a he was an amazing mechanical engineer. And you know, when you think about all of the things that he came up with in in pinball over the years, um, and that he was responsible for, um, he he was he was just one of those guys that you handed him problems and he solved them. Really, really great guy. I really like John a lot. Um, and uh, and I also while I was meeting while I was working at Pat Lawler Design, I finally got to meet uh, John Yowsey, who is a obviously an artist on tons and tons of games going back forever. Super super nice guy, and I always thought his I always loved his art, and he was such such a nice guy. I really liked working with him a lot too. And so you know, obviously getting to interact with those guys was a lot of fun. But uh, especially on NASCAR, it was really. Um, you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not was already starting to somewhat be white-wooded and built up when uh, when I left. And so I kind of got to see some of that game coming up, but NASCAR I was really, really um, remote from. I never even uh, flipped that play field until the game was in production, um, which is a little weird when you think about it. But on the other hand, you know, Lewis would say, well, we've got this mode, and I need to have a jackpot animation and Adam's going to give you the art. That's Adam Ryan, who was who did our art on a, on a lot of the later games. Um, I think he worked on Roller Coaster Tycoon and NASCAR and Ripley's Believe It or Not. Um, he was also a Dot Matrix artist at Williams. And uh, and Adam will give you this animation, and I need to flash ten times and have and I need to be able to show a six digit score at the end. And then you know, oh, and here in this animation, I need to have these text and stuff like that. And so. Um, I didn't know a lot about the rules or anything that were that were going on. It was much more, much more sort of uh, distant um, and and remote. And so while it was a lot of fun interacting with those guys and seeing sort of the pieces of the game, you know, Lewis would send me whitewood drawings and and uh, and artwork as it was coming up and stuff like that. Um, from a sort of game perspective, it was a lot. It was it was uh, it was really distanced from all of that. Now, was NASCAR and Grand Prix actually two licenses for each one of those? It was actually, they were actually separate licenses. Um, what the deal was that uh, they, were, they were worried that NASCAR wouldn't fly in Europe um, because it's just not known there. And so they got the Grand Prix license for Europe with the agreement that uh, none of the Grand Prix games could be sold in America and I believe vice versa. And so really all that Grand Prix is is NASCAR with new art and some sounds, I think. Uh, Playfield art, backlash art, dot art, and some sounds and text changes and stuff like that. So was that, I mean, you couldn't really reuse 
any of the animations on NASCAR for Grand Prix or vice versa? And a lot of the stuff we got to use, the biggest thing that had to be changed were the cars because the style of the cars in Grand Prix in Formula One is a lot different than the style of the cars in NASCAR. Some of the numbers on the cars had to be changed. A lot of text strings had to be changed and stuff like that. Um, those were really the big things. So then, did you do any games after NASCAR slash Grand Prix? No, um, after that, um, the new operating system came out, and um, um, it was all written over from scratch, and it was kind of merged. To, it was all merged back together again from a code base um, with a single-edge CPU running the board and uh, running the dot matrix, and so it suddenly became much, much more difficult to work on a game remotely than it was than uh, than uh, it was previously. And so um, that was sort of the end of my tenure as a uh, as a uh, pinball developer. Um, Pat, I know they hired another software guy, somebody who wasn't from the pinball industry and who I've never actually met, um, to work to work for them at that point. Right, right. So you're talking about the the new SAM system that uh, that Lyman helped develop. Yeah. Right. Right. So, well, I, I mean, are you you know tempted at all to try and get back to Chicago and 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 dive into this again? I don't know. I mean, it's been it's been a long time. I mean, I ke- I still keep in touch with all of those guys, and you know, I made some of my some of my best friends with some of my favorite people in the entire world, uh, working in and also just playing and loving pinball. Um, and I keep tra- I probably I'm probably still in touch with ninety five percent of the people that I met in the first two years that I uh, that I started playing really really fantastic group of guys and um and you know i met my girlfriend currently uh through the pin through pinball we met at a pinball expo and um so i mean i'm and i still go to shows and tournaments every year and so i'm obviously still really active and involved in pinball uh we uh we put on a pinball show here in seattle this year um called the uh, northwest pinball show it uh, came off really well we had about a hundred and hundred and ten games and uh fantastic seminar lineup uh steve weeby who was the sort of protagonist of the movie king of kong spoke and steve ritchie spoke and um so that was all that was all really fun we had a fantastic turnout and we're already uh, talking about growing it next year so i mean i'm really involved in pinball obviously in a lot of different ways um oh the other thing that happened after i left pat uh well sort of while this was while we were building up for Roller Coaster Tycoon, sort of during, there's a period of time when uh, the software guys are, are really cranking away trying to get uh, uh, software done uh, in time to get to meet the first game going off the line, and traditionally referred to as Game Hell. And so we were kind of in Game Hell for, uh, our, for Roller Coaster Tycoon, and uh, after um, Williams had closed, I had uh, I've, I've always been really into film and, and kind of uh, I was starting to get into filmmaking and I had come up with the idea of making a documentary about uh, Pinball 2000 and how all of that uh, kind of came to be and how it ended up and I started shooting some interviews and at the time it was really soon after Pinball 2000 had uh, had ended and a lot of people didn't want to talk and I couldn't George wasn't interested I think I think it was just a little too raw at the time and so uh, I had shot some interviews and then I kind of hung it up it never really went anywhere and uh um, a few years later, this guy named Greg Moletic contacted me and said uh, he had contacted George and had this idea to do the same thing. And George said, well, you know, uh, this guy, Greg, 
Dunlap had been working on a similar thing. Maybe you should talk to him, but I don't really don't know if I'm ready to do this or not. So Greg contacted me, and uh, me and him worked together on some pre-production stuff for a while, and we were talking about how we wanted to put everything together, and I introduced him to everybody in the pinball community and, 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 try, and you know, sort of gathered the forces behind him. And, uh, and then I was, having, I, was, uh, I was really, really tied up in Roller Coaster Tycoon at the time, and so I said, well, why don't you just take this from here and, uh, and, and, um, and go do your thing, and if I have time, maybe I'll join you again uh, later on. And he ended up actually finishing and making that movie. It's called uh, Tilt, The Future of Pinball. Um, and it's a really, really great movie. He did a really, really good job. Um, Tilt, The Battle to Save Pinball, I'm sorry. And, um, and he did a really great job. It's a really excellent documentary. And it's out on DVD. Um, so um, everybody should go and check that out. Uh, I highly recommend it. And it's got interviews with everybody who was involved. And really, really cool uh, graphical elements and lots of video and stuff. And so... Uh, so, I mean, over the years since then, I've been involved in a lot of stuff for pinball. But, I mean, you know, I'm pretty well set here in Seattle. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that, uh, well, you know, one can never say never. Um, I, I find it hard to imagine a time when I would be uh, seriously tempted to uh, fly back to Chicago and, uh, and rejoin that again. I mean, even at Stern right now, I mean, things are obviously, you know, I mean, obviously pinball is not out of the woods at all. And, uh, and they've got their own set of problems there. Um, and you know, it would it would it would. Um, I, I I find it hard to picture a time when uh, when I would do that. Okay. All right. Is there any other uh, any other things you want to talk about, or anything I left out or forgot to ask? I don't think so. I think that that pretty well um, that pretty well covers everything. Well, cool. Hey, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, it, it was great. I, I really liked hearing the, a, a lot about the slot machine stuff too. I know maybe some people don't like that that aspect, but I think it's just kind of cool how you know it kind of winds into the pinball people and how many pinball people were really involved with that and really trying to make it, you know, make a go at the slot machines, even though it was really ultimately what kind of killed pinball at Williams. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, one way or another, it's hard. To, it's hard to believe that pinball could have gone on much, much longer at Williams, given, you know, what what management wanted to make out of it. I mean, even if even if slots hadn't been, uh, even if slots hadn't been successful, um, it's hard to believe that anything would have ended up uh, much differently than it did. Yeah, you guys should have done a crappy job on the slots, and then maybe <laughs> then, then we'd have wizard blocks, you know. You know, maybe maybe we would have made it to Wizard Blocks. Maybe I don't know. Hard to say. Hard to say. <laughs> All right, Greg. Well, you take care and you have a good night. Thanks. You All too. Right. All right. I'd like to thank Greg Dunlop for joining us tonight on Topcast. Really appreciate his time. It's great hearing from him. I love um, his work in the slot machine division. He did some great slots, and he also worked on some pretty amazing pinball machines with Pat Waller Design and Stern. Um, good hearing from him, and I hope you all come back and listen to us again here on TopCast, the Pinball Internet Radio Show.